Well, I want to invite you to please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. And while you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and let you know what we'll be covering over the next few Sundays. Uh, today, our focus is going to be on the Lord Jesus Christ as he launches his preaching ministry in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And then next week, verses 16 through 20, we're going to have us focus on the call to discipleship. And we'll see Jesus make the call to uh, his first disciples to follow him. And the following week, I'm actually going to be with my family in Hickory, North Carolina, because somebody asked me to come back and perform a wedding ceremony. Very exciting time for us to go back, and we haven't seen the church uh, since uh, we left our last ministry. And it'll be great to see everyone. But our very own Francis Orihudos is going to step into the pul pulpit, and he is going to uh, preach on the cost of discipleship. And so I just rejoice its provision and the timing, and you can be praying uh, for Francis. I know he would be grateful for preparation, and he's going to be bringing God's word to us from Matthew chapter 10. Before I read our passage, I wanted to feature an aspect of its significance. Those who have been walking with the Lord for a number of years, you've had the opportunity to hear a number of different sermons on a number of different passages. And throughout the Gospels, there are many different lessons that the Lord instructs us with. The person and work of Christ is extensive, and it covers a lot of ground. However, there's something that you may not have thought about much, and Jesus' earthly ministry had a starting place. And there was a message that he began his ministry with. And when we think about this, there, there's some significance with it, because Jesus could have started his ministry anywhere and he could have you know it was he had the world of options on what message what word would he start with what defining element of of who he is and and his word would he bring to us it's powerful to consider think about it this is there's any number of messages and we're going to see that the lord was very specific and that it's definitely something he wants us to see. So please follow along as I read the focus of our study today. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And they read as follows. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You'll notice in our bulletin that the title of our message flows out of the two commands that were actually given in verse 15. Repent and believe. This passage allows us to see a ministry transition that's taking place according to God's redemptive plan. There are what I've described in your notes for you as two historical ministry events that should fuel our understanding of Christ's gospel proclamation or passage. We're going to look at the significance of both as we consider the progressive revelation of the gospel of God and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first historical ministry event that we'll flesh out helps us to see this reality. The forerunner's preaching ministry has come to an end. Look at the beginning of verse 14. It starts by saying, now after John had been taken into custody. 
The baptism of Jesus Christ and the arrest of John were considered milestones in the early church pointing to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And later on in the book of Acts, Luke records that the apostles understood Jesus' baptism as the beginning of his ministry in Acts 1.22, and it's also mentioned in Acts 10.37. But before we talk about Christ's ministry beginning, I think it's fitting and it's appropriate for us to acknowledge John's ministry coming to a close. When we talked about John the Baptist, you'll recall going back that we talked about the bridge that he built after 400 years of silence, bridging the Old Testament, the ministry of the Old Testament, to the ministry of the New Covenant. And to do this, we're going to look at both his fate and his faithfulness. First, his fate. In the NIV translation, this verse speaks of John being put in, put in prison instead of taken into custody. And the Greek doesn't specifically mention imprisonment, but it does speak to John being arrested, which is how the ESV translates it. Or if you have the New American Standard, it says that he was handed over. Mark also uses the same Greek verb in Mark 9.31 and 10.33, quoting Jesus when he's predicting that the time's going to come where he's actually going to be handed over to the Gentiles to be crucified. The fate of John the Baptist foreshadows what would eventually become of Christ when he's arrested and eventually executed. One commentator shared this great insight. The arrest of John and the beginning of Jesus' ministry are intentionally correlated to show that the gospel is proclaimed and known in adversity and suffering, not in ease and comfort. Jesus' announcement of the good news in Mark 1.14 in the immediate context of the arrest and eventual execution of righteous John epitomizes Mark's presentation of the gospel. The baptizer is the forerunner of Jesus, not only in his message, but also in his fate, which includes suffering and death. And the baptizer is not a prototype for Jesus alone, as we'll see in the sandwich technique of Mark chapter 6, Verses 7 through 30, passage that we'll eventually get to and, and, and hopefully get a chance to study probably five years from now. Just kidding. But we see John's arrest and execution. It set a standard for, for the disciples of Jesus as well. And so contrary to what health, wealth, and prosperity preachers might want us to believe, the good news of the gospel is not an invitation to financial freedom and a stress-free life. In fact, most believe that Mark's gospel was composed in Rome during the mid-60s, so the effect of linking the gospel with the arrest of the baptizer would also have resonated with Mark's readers who were suffering great persecution under the reign of Nero. I think our world news continues to provide great evidence of the ongoing hostility towards Christians across the globe. Unless you've been living in a cave, you've seen on the news they've, or, or, or online that, that just showing videos of uh, Christians in Egypt as Islamic terrorist groups have captured, uh, captured them and then, and then led them out to once on the beach, once in another place, literally beheading them. And some of you may not even be aware of this story because it wasn't very highly publicized. But earlier this month, in Kenya, there were 148 Christian university students who were shot altogether because they were believers. 
the Associated Press didn't have much to say, except that they were Christians shot on the spot. We live in an Americanized culture where our faith and freedom subdues the reality of the life-threatening persecution that other parts of the world face on such a regular basis. And in the Middle East, you can actually take your finger since the time of Christ and you can put it on all of history and you can see a steady, steady uh, line of persecution and execution since, since the, the time of Christ. For believers, it's just consistent. In our culture, we just... That, that, that seems so far from us, right? It's, it's, it's so disconnected because we don't experience here, experience it here. Faithful and courageous men and women of God who are living for Christ and with all their heart and soul are following John just as he did, pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. The forerunner was faithful to the end. And those familiar with the accounts in Matthew and Luke know that John the Baptist even sent a couple of his disciples to ask Jesus, Luke 7, 19 and 20, he asked this question, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? Why would John ask such a question? I mean, after all, didn't it appear that he was so confident when Jesus came to get baptized? Here he is. He's the chosen one. I'm not even worthy to get down and touch his shoe. Why do you seem so confident? Why? He asked that question. You want to know why? Perhaps John made the similar mistake the disciples made by thinking that somehow life after the Messiah showed up was going to be different for him too. And he remained incarcerated and he was in prison and he probably began to wonder what was going to happen next. And those familiar with this story and the account, which we'll get to study in Mark chapter 6, know that John the Baptist, well, he ended up being beheaded by Herod to request his niece. There has always been and there will always be a high cost when it comes to faithfully pointing others to Christ. And the end of John's ministry closes the door to a long line of many Old Testament prophets who sacrificed their lives pointing both God's people and the lost world to the promised one. Now our second point is going to offer us some specific application through the commands that are given to us from Christ. I think it's fitting for us just to reflect on some principles that we can draw from the faithful forerunner and even his questioning response at the end of his ministry. Like John, if I am the only voice in my workplace, in my school, In my family, will I be faithful and courageous enough to broadcast the message of repentance? Like John and the early disciples, have I misunderstood that my commitment to point others to Christ may mean facing some adversity, even some very real and very strong persecution? And the reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ in his own words told us that he did not come to bring peace, but that he came to bring a sword. And that even some enemies would be members of your own household. Right? I think this does provide a perspective for us when we see those who are being killed 
and imprisoned for their faith, yet we are fearful about walking across the street to share Christ with our neighbor. Or in our workplace, we're fearful of what somebody's going to think when we, we walk across to go to the next cubicle to, to reach out. And if the Lord helped John and so many faithful prophets before him overcome their fears, well, I think he can help us overcome our fears as well. Amen? Amen? And he will. And he will. And we can look at faithful men of Scripture who were, were, were frightened. Moses, he, I, I, I stutter. I, I, I don't want to be the guy. I, I, I don't send me. <laughs> send somebody else. The Lord's uh, exhortation to Joshua at the beginning of the book, be strong. Be courageous. It's for us. For us, we fear. We have a fear of man. All of us do. And we overcome that fear. And you'll recall Mary and Mary Magdalene, right? When they were the first to, to, to see the resurrected Savior, right? And they, they had to go back and they had to tell the disciples. Remember the, the fear that immediately gripped their hearts. It's real. It's real. We can be so encouraged by the first historical event that takes place. The forerunner's preaching ministry ends, and he was faithful. He was faithful to the end. Even with his head coming out on a platter, he was faithful to the end. Well, the second event is this. The Messiah's preaching ministry begins. Notice the middle of verse 14. It says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And here our verse is going to provide a historical setting for us. And it provides the location and the message which Jesus began to preach. Let's first talk about the location and truly how remarkable it was that Jesus chose Galilee of all places to launch his gospel preaching ministry. Commentator shared, quote, Jesus did not prepare for a missionary campaign first against Jerusalem and then into the rest of the world. No, he remained in insignificant Galilee, end quote. It's true. There's really nothing special about the, the region. Galilee was a place where it was an accumulation of Jewish settlers. And if you look down in verse 28 of this same chapter, it says, immediately the news about him spread everywhere into the surrounding district of Galilee. And then if you turn just a couple chapters to uh, Mark chapter 3 and verse 7, it also says, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and the, a great multitude from Galilee followed. So apparently Galilee was pretty fertile ground for the Lord's ministry launch. Interestingly, Galilee, if you recall um, from our message on Resurrection Sunday, was the very place that the Lord asked Mary and Mary Magdalene to send the disciples ahead to meet him there. Some believe that because uh, John the Baptist was just captured in Judea, that Galilee was the next logical choice. Well, the historical emphasis of where Jesus began his preaching ministry is important, but it definitely takes a backseat to the message and the progressive revelation bringing us to this point. Verse 14 ends by saying that Christ was preaching the gospel of God. For those that were with us when we launched our study of the Gospel of Mark, because it mentions this word uh, in the Greek, euangelion, at the very beginning, we talked about the significance of that term. The Greek 
word means good news. And we shared in our study of that verse that Mark is not using the term translated good news here as Paul uses it in all of its theological depth, referring to the life, death, and resurrection and the, the sinner's need to, response, or to respond in repentance and faith, Mark, we said, is using it as anyone who would have heard it for the first time would have understood it. Message containing good news. It was a, a message announcing the good news about Jesus Christ and would have been familiar to his primarily Roman Gentile audience who Rome was just major aggression, right? They were conquering all the people around them. So they were hearing words that were coming back from their victories in battle. It was Elion. It was good news. Well, here Mark uses the same word again in our passage when quoting Christ. But he, he supplies some additional information in verse 15, excuse me, that broadens the scope to fuel our understanding of Christ's gospel proclamation. Mark supplies four details in verse 15 to the words of Jesus. Our Lord says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The first detail that the Lord provides as it relates to the gospel of God is the time is fulfilled. And in Greek, this word for time is actually kairos. It's not uh, the, uh, a word, uh, the word chronos, which relates to um, chronology and an order of time. This is actually a specific uh, season or epic event that is being referred to. The coming of Jesus, God was doing something special. Christ's ministry marks the fulfillment of the special salvation time, which is distinguished from all other time. In an understanding of the significance, we have to understand the timing of this event in light of all that's taken place in progressive revelation throughout the Old Testament as God reveals his plan of redemption. It goes all the way back to Genesis and the story of redemption involved faith in a promised seed that God would provide. This is, we need, we, we need to see this, the, the, the promised seed of Christ. From the first human beings God created and placed in the Garden of Eden to the very last people who are born on earth, our gracious God has always offered salvation through the promised seed of Jesus Christ. Before the Messiah's birth, Old Testament saints admitted their sin and trusted in the seed who was to come, and they were saved. Adam and Eve were given the promise of deliverance through their seed in Genesis 3.15, and they believed and worshiped God in Genesis 4.25 and 26. And this begins the progression of pointing to that promised seed, the one who was going to come. That seed, as Genesis 3.15 says, is going to crush, crush the head of Satan. So it was with Abraham and the covenant that God made with him as well. And then when we get outside of the book of Genesis, the Old Testament reiterates the promise God made with Abraham and his descendants. It reveals increasingly and progressively more details about the blessings and the seed of Abraham. And as more details are given about the seed through whom the blessings of God will come, the more the field of candidates really begins to narrow. And by the end of the Old Testament period, the promised seed can only be one person. It's reduced down to one person, a very unique person who would fulfill all the messianic prophecies and promises of God. 
as, as, as the Old Testament really narrows it down, one of the things that was a challenge for the, the Hebrew people, because so much was said about this, the, the, the prophecy, that it was hard for them to even imagine that this was going to be one person. So, so it's, it's like a funnel. It's just, you know, all this, uh, as God's general, or, or excuse me, as God's special revelation is, is being displayed through the Old Testament, it's, it's being funneled in, and eventually it gets narrowed down all the way down to help them see that it was going to be one person. Just consider this short list of the characteristics of God's promised seed mentioned in the Old Testament. The physical line through whom the Messiah was to come included Gentiles. Now that alone baffled Israelites. Okay, it's going to include Gentiles. The coming seed was spoken of as a prophet, a priest, and a king. The coming seed was described as both human and divine. Mighty Counselor, Prince of Peace, Almighty God. The coming seed was to be a triumphant king, and yet also a suffering servant. The scripture said that he would be gentle, and yet that he would also be fierce. All of this serves as a backdrop to what Jesus just shares in this opening phrase of Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. There is no more waiting. There is no more wondering. John the Baptist, after 400 years of silence, just came saying, prepare the way. The one is coming. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he shows up and he says, I am the one. I am the good news. I am the gospel of God. He is prophet, priest, king. As the great prophet, he can point people to the good news of himself in his gospel proclamation. Think about this. All the other prophets were pointing to somebody else. And Jesus is the great prophet because he was the one who could say, I am him. I am the one. He could direct his listeners to himself. No other prophet could do that. Practically, this should serve as fuel to our understanding of Christ's gospel proclamation. You and I have the full revelation of the gospel when we point someone to Christ. We know exactly who it is that we're talking about. There's nothing shrouded in mystery. I was thinking about this, and I was like, man, it must have been so hard to evangelize or proselytize in the Old Testament. Because you'd be, be, be sharing with someone and you'd be saying, yeah, um, God's word actually promises that, that, that there's a promised one who, who's going to come. Well, do you know who it is? Well, no, I, I, we don't know yet. But God said that he's coming. Well, what do you know about him? Well, we know that he's going to be a prophet, he's going to be a priest, and he's going to be a king. Uh, How is he going to do all those things? I mean, but, who, who could possibly... Do all those things. Oh, by the way, he's going to be human, and, and he's going to be divine. And in a sense, just the challenge that they must have faced, oh, he's going to be a king. But, but wait, wait a minute. He's also going to be a suffering servant. 
Wait a minute, he's going to be gentle, but he's going to be fierce too. Man, I, I do not envy. Uh, I do not envy the position that they were placed in. Right there, there was a great deal of of, of difficulty understanding, you know, who exactly the, the Messiah was going to be. And we are so blessed. We have the full revelation of Christ. We have the big picture. As the great high priest, he stands qualified because of what transpired basically in, these, in, in the opening chapters of what we studied so far in the Gospel of Mark. First, as the great high priest, Jesus identified with all of our sins in his baptism. And those familiar with the role of the high priest in the Old Testament, knowing that the sins of God's people had to be regularly confessed and atoned for, and this process was unending because the sins of, of God's people had to be dealt with repeatedly. And as the great high priest, through his baptism, Jesus identified with all the sins of mankind when, when he ex- accepted his role as the sin bearer. It wasn't a regular high priest who only identified and dealt with the current sins of God's people. Jesus is the great high priest who identified with all the sins of mankind, past, present, future. Christ was further qualified as our high priest when he tracked down Satan and defeated Satan with withstanding every single one of his temptations that he could throw at his humanity. Yet our high priest, our great high priest, stood victorious. And now he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Having been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And his righteousness stayed intact so that it could be imputed to the believer's account. All God's people said, Amen. We rejoice. We rejoice. And not only this, that when we do fall and fail into temptation, that we can return to his victory. And then we can grab a hold of his righteousness. And we can be renewed in the gospel. We can be renewed in him. We can be strengthened. Even in our hour of failure. His victory preserved his unblemished purity so that as the great high priest, he could offer himself up as the once and for all perfect blood sacrifice for our sin. And this is why we see the same progression in all the synoptic gospels. That Jesus Christ comes on the scene, he is baptized and he identifies with our sin, and then he goes immediately into the the, the wilderness to be tempted. Why? Why? Why is that so important? Because it it, it had to take place, and it makes sense that if the great high priest sinned and if he had fallen into temptation, he could no longer be our sinless sacrifice. But he was victorious. He was victorious, and the great high priest can now sympathize with our weaknesses through that process. His victory also renews us and strengthens us and when we fall into temptation. Finally, Jesus serves as the conquering king, and he's able to extend invitations to God's kingdom. The second detail that Jesus provides about the gospel of God in verse 15 reveals this. Look at the middle of verse 15. Jesus came preaching, the time is fulfilled. Let's talk about what that meant. And the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God was even closer now because the conquering king has arrived. And his gospel proclamation and ministry are launched. John the Baptist used this expression first in Matthew 3, 2. 
And this expression is only used in the New Testament, by the way. And, and John said this, that the kingdom of God is at hand because he recognized that the Messiah, the one, the appointed one, was coming. This phrase is used 65 times in the New Testament, and 14 of its occurrences come in the Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters. So we need to understand what it means. The verb Jesus use, uses with it literally means it has come near. It is at hand, or if we want to express it this way, it's within reach. Ladies who have been doing some cooking in the kitchen, you always appreciate when things are at hand, right? They're accessible. They're right there within reach. It's right there. That's what it's saying. In the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus speak about the kingdom of God in a variety of ways. And I want to just do a brief survey. We're going to get to these passages eventually. But what I want to do is to cultivate and make sure that we have a deep understanding we understand what the, what the kingdom of God is and what is meant by it. In Mark 11, Jesus speaks of it as a mystery that cannot be deciphered and calculated. It is best spoken of in analogies or parables like in Mark 4:26 and 30. It mentions this. At the present, the kingdom of God is hidden. Although in the future, Mark shares that it will reveal God's power and glory. In Mark 9:1, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with its power. Six days later, we know what happened, right? Peter, James, and John, they go to the mount. The transfiguration takes place. They're like, wow. No, Peter, I'm going to build three tabernacles. worship. He's just like, wow, totally blown away. But all they did was just get a taste. All they did was just get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. And one commentator shared this insight. Even in its hiddenness, people must make a decision to receive the kingdom of God or reject it. And its future manifestation makes the present choice a matter of urgency. Even now in its embryonic form, there are surprises. The rich and confident will scarcely find entrance. And then he quotes Mark 10, 23 through 25, which is a passage that says that it's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than it is for rich men to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus also shares that the poor, insignificant, and outsiders, even children, find readily admittance in Mark chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. And all of these passages allow us to study the, the, the kingdom of God in greater measure in the coming Sundays. But there's something in the Greek that I want to share with you to fuel your understanding of Christ's gospel proclamation. Not only is the kingdom of God the substance of Jesus' teaching ministry when he says it's at hand, but it also corresponds to and it's identified in the closest possible way with his own person and ministry. Mark uses a a unique verb choice here that reinforces the linkage of the kingdom of God with Jesus' person. And he uses a verb that occurs in the New Testament and other places, and it refers to spatial rather than temporal near, nearness. Okay? Let me help you understand that, right? It was, it, it was about space. It wasn't about time. He's already actually qualified the time. He said the, 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 the time has been fulfilled. He's already talked about time. Now he's talking about another reality. The kingdom 
of God is at hand. It's within reach. So answer this question for me. When you think about the kingdom of God, do you typically think of a person or do you think of a place? I think it's common for many of us to think mostly about it being a place, but Jesus makes a parallel reference to the kingdom of God with the kingdom of heaven. And so I wanted us to see this, that the answer is both. And Mark, being led by the Holy Spirit, was connecting the kingdom of God with the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. I think there's a real practical connection with this, even as it relates to our evangelism. Oftentimes, we get so fixated on the place of heaven, don't we? You know, we're, we're, we're captivated by the place of heaven. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Who doesn't want that? Sign me up. Who doesn't want it? Right? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard all that God has prepared, nor has it even entered into the heart of man. What God has prepared for those who love him. Right? And, and it, it does connect to a place. Jesus, when the, when, when the disciples were grieving in John 14, right, when their hearts were heavy, he said, I'm going to go. I'm going and I'm going to prepare a place for you. So there is a dynamic of that. But so often I think that even in our evangelism that we, we, we divorce in our minds the reality and the importance and the significance of connecting with the person of God. You know what's so great about the kingdom of God? He's there. He's there in his presence, in his fullness, in all his glory, in all his surroundings. It, it's real. In the Lord Jesus Christ saying something when he said the time is fulfilled kingdom is at hand and all you have to do all you have to do is to reach out to reach out and grab it I am the kingdom I am the kingdom grab hold of me grab hold of me if I could summarize in one phrase, what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying as he inaugurates his preaching ministry in Mark 1.15, it would be this. The time is now. The message is me. The time is now, and the message is me. And as previously mentioned, there's a sense of urgency in Christ's gospel proclamation that should fuel our understanding. Pastor R. Kent Hughes said it this way when he wrote about verse 15, quote, there was and is a radical nowness to Jesus's preaching. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to believe. How would Jesus urge you or someone else to believe if he were here now? Would he say, I want to explain to you the hypostatic union and then say, I would like you to consider this and it's up to you whether you want to believe? How would he call you to repent? Would he say, sin is an abomination in my sight, in my father's sight. It would be really nice if you would repent. Or would he come with urgency and say, belief is the most important thing in life. And you need to trust completely in me. Mark Kent Hughes, he finishes by saying, Jesus 
but to plead with you to do that. He would plead with you to do that. I had the joy yesterday of officiating a memorial service for a man who lived for 73 years and was the father of a member in our church. And I was so grateful, so blessed that she asked me to come and be a part of that celebration. And the beauty of that celebration, the joy of that celebration was not only on the gift of life that was given, but we also had a chance to exalt Christ and exalt the gospel, to exalt the gospel of God and the kingdom of God. And it was such a good reminder you know, thankfully, I'm in a church, and we're a young church, where it appears that we're going to be doing more weddings than we are going to be doing funerals. But f- funerals, my friends, they serve a specific purpose. They're a wake-up call. They're, 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 there's, there's urgency that, that comes, right? And just like R- Richard Baxter even shared, he said these words, I preach as a dying man to dying men. And the same is true for all of us when we're sharing the gospel that we preach as dying men and women of God to dying men and women. And that death is knocking on the door for everyone and tomorrow is not promised. And so if you're here today, my friend, and, 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 and you're uncertain about your relationship with God, have you taken the hand? Have you, have you grabbed a hold of the hand through repentance and faith of the Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ and, 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 and clung to him? He had, he, the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's established through a personal relationship with him. And the reality of who he is the kingdom of God. He is the kingdom of God. Will you respond? Will you respond? How does the Lord Jesus Christ shepherd our hearts? For, for all the people who would hear this opening message, what does the Lord Jesus Christ finish with he does so with the third and fourth detail of the gospel of god by providing two commands repent and believe in the gospel much can be said about repentance as both the old testament and new testament epistles um, the old testament passages and new testament epistles provide many insights into what a full and developed repentance of sin looks like but as it relates to the context of our passage today, which fuels our understanding of Christ's gospel proclamation, there is one sin that must be, pre, must be repented of that drives at the very heart of the gospel. One sin. It is the sin of unbelief. There is one sin that is mentioned in the Bible. It's considered the unforgivable sin. What is it? What is it? What is it? Yeah, unbelief, it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. it's, It's a rejection of believing what the Holy Spirit has revealed about man's greatest need provided in the promised seed of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is a rejection of that truth. And forgiveness cannot take place if you reject that truth. 
It is the sin of unbelief. And I believe this helps us see Christ's gospel proclamation with greater clarity. It helps us progress in evangelism and discipleship, which is a ministry pillar of our church. And when we are reaching out to somebody, yes, we want to we want them to repent of their sin. And that's noble and that's accurate as it relates to to our gospel proclamation to them. But I think sometimes when we look at people and we look at their lives, we look at the, all their sin. We look at the fact that they, you know, they live with their boyfriend or a girlfriend, or maybe they're living, you know, in 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 a, a fornicating or homosexual relationship. We look at the fact that, you know, they go out on the weekends and they party and they get drunk. They may use alcohol and drugs and 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 they they run with wild and crazy people, right? And we 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 think like, well, they need to repent of their sin, and we get so focused on all of their sin. The Lord Jesus Christ helps us. He helps provide fuel and focus for his, within his gospel proclamation. And you know what? That, the sin that needs to be repented of first is unbelief. It's unbelief. Do you believe, dear friend? You can reduce your gospel conversations with your friends down. Do you believe? Jesus does it effectively in the gospels as we'll see too. Do you believe? Do you believe? That's it. And after a person's heart is born again, and after they're regenerated, and you know, I, I can even think about my own experience and, and, and my own salvation. I, you know, I don't know that I even had a full grasp of a repentance. I was in infancy. I don't know that I fully understood the re- repentance and the depth, and I didn't know where Second Corinthians. Uh, seven uh, chapter seven was and what a godly sorrow and I, I, I don't know that I had a, a a full grasp but I can tell you this much as it related to my repentance I know that I needed to repent of my unbelief that Jesus Christ was sufficient and that I needed to place all my faith and trust in Him and God is gracious and merciful and He allows us to cultivate and develop our repentance as believers, right? And in time, that person, once they repent of their unbelief, they can grow. They can grow. They can, they'll, they'll see their need to uh, maybe not be, not to cohabitate. They'll see their need to not run with friends that are going to take them and draw them away from Christ. They'll see all those things time, in time. Our focus needs to be on their unbelief. And our verse reveals in the fourth and final detail of the gospel of God, not only are we turning from our unbelief, but that we're returning to something, right? We're turning to Christ. We are fully in trust, entrusting ourselves. In fact, it says something specific at the end of our verse. It says, believe in what? what does it say? What does your Bible say? Good news. Yeah, believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news. It's right there specifically. And we talked about this, this, this gospel right here. Is this the, um, a fully revealed gospel that is taking place right here? Does this include, and has they already experienced at this point, the, the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? And would a person, fully, all the epistles that reveal all this information about repentance, 
No, but it's enough. It's enough. It points Jesus Christ. It points him to the promised seed and the reality that the promised seed is revealed and I'm right before you. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. And that's enough. And then through the progressive revelation, as the gospel continues to to, to unfold and develop through the progressive revelation of God. We see it in all of its glory, in all of its fullness, in all of its specific information. It's beautiful. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. The time is now. And the message is him. The message is is Christ. You guys know how much I love J.C. Ryle. And I was looking at um, what he wrote just as it related to this passage. And I know that I've shared some long quotes from him before, but this, this is so good. I want to share this with you. He says this about nature of Christ's preaching ministry. This is that old sermon which all the faithful witnesses of God have continually preached from the very beginning of the world. From Noah down to the present day, the substance of their address has always been the same. Repent and believe. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesian elders when he left, for, uh, left them for the last time that the substance of his teaching among them had been repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 20:21, 20, And he had the best precedence such teaching the great head of the church had given him a pattern repentance and faith were the foundation stones of Christ's ministry repentance and faith must always be in the main must always be the main subjects of every faithful minister's instruction we need not wonder at this if we consider the necessities of human nature and all of us are born by nature born in sin children of wrath all need to repent be converted and born again if we see if we would see the kingdom of god all of us are by nature guilty and condemned before God. And all must flee to the hope set before us in the gospel and believe in it if we would be saved. All of us, once penitent, need daily stirring up to deeper repentance. All of us, though believing, need constant exhortation to increased faith. Grasp that. We need it. It's not. To, it's. It, it, it's. It, we're. We're growing in our faith. We're growing in our repentance. In the same way that my infant repentance was enough because I trusted and turned to belief. Right. We can cultivate repentance. We. We learn to develop and cultivate a hatred for sin, and we love what the Lord loves. He finishes and he says, "Let us ask ourselves what we know of this repentance and faith." Have we felt our sins and forsaken them? Have we laid hold on Christ and believed? We may reach heaven without learning, or riches, or health, or worldly greatness, but we shall never reach heaven if we die impenitent and unbelieving. A new heart and a lively faith in a Redeemer are absolutely needful to salvation. May we never rest until we know them by experience and call them our own. With them, all true Christianity begins in the soul, and the exercise of them consists the life of religion. It is only through the possession of them that man can have peace at last. Church membership and priestly absolution alone can save no one. Only those who die in the Lord who repent and believe are saved.
Ah. Powerful. Powerful. Cornerstone, do we believe? Do, 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 we, do we believe? Or, or, do we play games? I play games sometimes. My, my faith needs to move me. And I do have people even in my own neighborhood that I still have yet to connect with that I need to reach out. We, we've been talking about even a neighbor, Jewish background. I wish I had a Jewish background. A messianic Jew, that'd be awesome. <laughs> but I am content just being a lowly Gentile and having faith, okay? But what, what, do we, do we, are our hearts, does our faith, is, does our faith have feet? Talked about that before. Is it, is it moving us? Do we have these sense of urgency that the Lord Jesus Christ operated with, with his gospel proclamation? The time is now and the message is me. Cornerstone, it, this is us. This is our church. This is our family. There's nobody else. There's nobody else that's going to do it. We're not waiting on anyone else. It's, it's, it's up to us. God's going to use us as instruments in his hand. Praise his name for those opportunities. But let us be more prayerful for our unsaved family and friends. Let us... Um, be more mindful. You know, we, we have our resource table over here that's filled with gospel tracts for you. I, I, I hope, and, and Sam and Amanda are such a blessing to keep that, uh, keep that stock for us. I hope that we, they have to keep coming and saying, we, we ran out of gospel tracts again. We're out of gospel tracts again. We can't, we can't keep it supplied. Why? Because we're taking them, and, and, and we're, with the sense of urgency, we're reaching the people that so desperately need the gospel of God. Praise God for our church family. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we just are so thankful that you gave us this time to see the priority in the very first message, Father, that launched your son's ministry and his gospel proclamation. We pray that we would be consumed with the kingdom of God we would see it as you, that you are the kingdom, you are the glory, you are the power. And there would be no kingdom if you weren't present. And we thank you for the byproducts that come with heaven. But Lord, capture our hearts and help us to always see that the prime product is you. It's our personal established relationship, growing relationship with you. I pray, Father, that you'll help us to remove the obstacles and the impediments from our spiritual walks that limit us from seeing the greatness of who you are. And that you'll continue just to help us grow in our understanding. You're so patient to grow us. Father, I pray for anyone that's here today that has not grabbed the hand of your son kingdom that is at hand ready and waiting and available that today would be the day of salvation and that they would be all in for you their heart soul mind and strength that they would come repent of their unbelief and trust completely in christ 
We look forward, Father, to all the opportunities that you'll provide for us to grow as disciples and grow in our understanding of our own repentance and faith that you've blessed us with. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.